can be seated. That's good. I can do this because Kathy is away at retreat. There's a lot of things I've been able to do the last couple of days that I don't usually get to do. I got to go shooting, go play with the bow, let Joe pace in the front yard while I was shooting arrows between him as he's pacing. It's good practice. I can't ever get away with those things when mama's home. <laughs> Would you join me and open up the Bible to the book of Matthew? <clears throat> and we're going to continue our journey through the book of Matthew. When we look at Matthew, we need to understand Matthew wrote this gospel to present to us the king. The king is Jesus Christ. He was promised in the Old Testament. In fact, David... When he said to God, you guys remember David said to God, Lord, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you this house because I got this cool temple, but God, you're you're being worshipped over there in that tent. He was still in the tabernacle. David said, I'm going to build, I want to build God a house. And so he went to the prophet and he said to the prophet, can I, can I build God a house? Is that okay? And the prophet never asked God. He just said, that sounds like a good idea. Go ahead. So David starts making plans, and the prophet, he goes home, and the Lord speaks to him and says, "Uh, Excuse me, God ever done that to you, by the way? I never told you that was okay. I never said go ahead and do that. Go tell David he can't build me a house. But when you tell him, you tell him this, I'm going to build for him a house. The promise that God gave to David was that the Mashiach, the Messiah, God in the flesh would come through him, through his line. And that there would be a king who would return to the throne one day. Of whom the kingdom would never end, it would never cease. That king is who Matthew is presenting to us. The king of kings, the lord of lords. Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 through 4, he gives us the person. He tells us the person of Jesus. Here he is. Here's how he was born. Here's his family line. Here's the lineage that leads back to King David. The promise that God made so long ago. Here here is that fulfillment. Keep in mind, for the nation of Israel, there's no king. You got Herod ruling on one side and, and Rome ruling over on the other side. And there's no king in Israel. Just like the time of the Judges. Sometimes for you and I, that's the way it is in our life. There's no king. We serve ourselves. Or or we serve someone else. But just as the scripture laid out in the book of Judges, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own mind. It's the same attitude we can have, where there's no king. But see, Jesus is the king. That's what Matthew came to tell us. Jesus is the king, and we need to make the choice. That says, I'm serving the king. I will seek first, what did Jesus say? His kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. We need to live our life as though Jesus is our king. 
So Matthew presents him, the person in the first four. In, in chapter 5 and through 7, he gives us the principles of the kingdom. What's the principles of the kingdom? Guys, he tells us the servant on the mount. When you're reading through scripture and you come to a place and it says, and Jesus went into the synagogues and taught them. Do you ever wonder what he taught? Well, I'll make it simple for you. He taught chapters 5 through 7 or some portion thereof. The Bible tells us that over and over and over again, he taught those principles of the Sermon on the Mount. The principles of the kingdom. The character of the people whose whose God is their king. This is the character that's in their life. We look at chapter 5 through 7, it ought to challenge us. Is that me? Because it will indict me. It will either say, yes, indeed, Jesus Christ is your king. Or it will say, not really. And if it says not really, it doesn't mean that it's supposed to drive me to the point where I want to quit. Or I want to give up. What it's supposed to do is say, encourage me. Because Jesus came for someone just like me. After chapter 7, the principles of the king, or of the kingdom, we come to chapters 8, 9, and 10. 8, 9, and 10 lay out for us the power of the king. Chapters 8 and 9 are focused around 10 miracles. And we've gone through some of those already. What are those 10 miracles? Remember first, Jesus came to to touch the outcast. To reach out to the outcast. The person nobody wanted. That's where Jesus starts. He starts with reaching out to the outcast. And then, as we read past those first three miracles, we come to a time where Jesus is bringing peace to the troubled. Remember, he said, peace be still, and what happened? The storm stopped. Remember the demoniac? You know, he filled with uh, many demons, so many that the demon called himself legion. He had no peace, but Jesus brought him peace. Jesus came to bring peace. Peace, to touch the outcast, and then the end of chapter 9, as we close out in chapter 9 and head into chapter 10, he restores the broken. That's the power of the king, to touch the outcast, to give peace to the trouble, to restore the broken. You fit in any of those categories? You fit in a category maybe where you are an outcast, Jesus wants to touch you. How about you don't have any peace? He wants to be your peace. How about you need restored? Jesus came to restore the broken. That's our king. That's the king above all kings. Many kings, earthly kings today, think that they exist in order to be served by us. But Jesus said, I've come, I exist to serve you. And then he said, a teacher's not greater than his master. He laid out for us the concept that, that we should follow as we've seen him, so we should do. Jesus washing the feet of the disciples in John chapter 13. Jesus, through these chapters, going about a busy ministry with people needing him every day. Couldn't catch a break. Wherever he turned, whatever he did, there was another person needing healing. There was another person needing ministered to. That job, by the way, is never over. It's never finished. Until his kingdom come, it's never finished. But Jesus was moved with compassion to reach out with love and touch people's lives. That's the king. 
That's the king I want to follow. That's the king whose kingdom I want to seek first in my life. There's a lot of stuff I'd like to do. Probably most of us have a lot of stuff we'd like to do, right? But the first thing ought to be seeking our king. His kingdom. His rule. As the prayer in the Sermon on the Mount said, on earth as it is in heaven, right? So as we pick it up in chapter 9, we see Jesus continuing that bringing peace. He's going to do this sixth miracle. It says in uh, chapter 9, verse 1, So he got into the boat and he crossed over and he came to his own city. That would be Capernaum. It's called the city of Jesus. Uh, If you come with us to Israel this year, when we go in January, you have an opportunity to walk through Capernaum, see Peter's house, uh, where this story actually takes place. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying in a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Now Luke and Mark lay this out a little bit better for us. They tell us that Jesus was teaching in Peter's house. You remember? And it's really crowded. And there were these friends. A paralytic can't get himself to Jesus, right? He just lays. In fact, he's probably saying, Don't. I don't want to go. Leave me alone. But his friends, his four friends, they come alongside and they, they make a, 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 a bed for him that they can carry, that they can attach ropes to, and they go to Peter's house. Now, they can't get in the back door to Peter's house, so the Bible tells what they did. They went to the roof. The roof was made up of, of sticks and mud caked together to seal out. And they went up there and tore the roof off Peter's house. Friends like that. Who needs enemies, right? And then they make this hole in the roof of Peter's house. I'm sure everybody in there, well, Jesus knows what's going on. But everybody else is like, what in the world? It sounds like somebody's tearing through the roof. Sure enough. They tear through the roof and let down the bed. But did you see what it said? Jesus said when he saw their faith. Whose faith? The friends. The faith of the friends who brought their friend to Jesus. So when he saw their faith, he was moved by, by their faith, by their belief, as they bring him and they lay him before Jesus. Jesus says to him the one thing that he really needs to know. Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And you know that's the most important thing we need to understand? Not whether or not we can rise up and walk. But whether or not our sins are forgiven. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah lays out for us in the 43rd chapter, he tells us that it is God only who can forgive sin. So when Jesus is standing there over the paralytic man and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven you, what is he saying? He's saying, I'm God. No question. The reason why we know there's no question is because of what those who were watching said. And at once, it says in verse 3, the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. They didn't say it. They thought it. They're thinking, that's blasphemy. You can't forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. Exactly Jesus' point. Exactly his point. 
So Jesus answers them. It says in the scripture, but Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? Folks, this is the beginning. This moment, as Jesus is doing the works promised to the Messiah. What, did the, what was the promise of the Messiah? The blind would see, the deaf would hear, the lame would leap like a deer. That the leper would be cleansed. That sins would be forgiven as far as the east is from the west, right? That's what it said in the book of Psalms. That when Messiah came, these were the things that were going to mark him so that the people would recognize it's him. But you see, the religious, the self-righteous, the scribes, they look at him and they think, "What? A, he's a blasphemer. They don't pay any attention to the things he's doing. Just their concept, their interpretation of, of the words that he's saying, God can't come in the flesh, can he? God couldn't be here with us, could he? Well, he's, he's a blasphemer. Jesus said, why do you think evil in your hearts? Right now, that moment, the rejection of the king has begun. Right there. It'll be culminated a little bit later, but right now, it's beginning. What right do you have to say his sins are forgiven? Well, Jesus answers them. For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? Jesus said, now I can say your sins are forgiven you, but you don't really know if that took place. It's just words. But if I was to say, arise and walk, you would know whether or not that took place, right? Because if I say it and he doesn't get up, then you know I don't have the power. But again, remember, Matthew's presenting to us the power of the king, his ability to heal the broken to bring peace to the troubled lives, to bring restoration. And so Matthew lays it out. Jesus said, which one's easier? But so that you know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Rise up and walk. And the man rose up, took his bed, and went to his house. Jesus uses a title of Messiah, the Son of of man it's one of his favorite titles the concept of the son of man is that very concept god in the flesh that he has become the son of man so that he can bridge the gap between sinful man and a perfect god so he came and put on that flesh so his favorite title for himself is the son of man so you know The Son of Man, a title for the Messiah, has the ability to forgive sins, which makes him God. He says, arise and walk, and he got up, took his bed, and left. Jesus showed them right in their face. I am Almighty God. I've come to forgive sins. That's the message, isn't it? Isn't that the message of this whole healing? That Jesus is saying to them, listen, I've come to bring forgiveness. The most important thing that you need is that forgiveness, forgiveness of your sins. He wants them to understand that that's the the role of the Mashiach, the anointed one, to come and bring that forgiveness, to come and make that relationship right. It says in verse 8, Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. The cool thing is, The scripture lays out for us that we are to do our good deeds before men so that men will see our good deeds and glorify who? God. 
the Father, right? We need to keep that in mind. As we go about and do the things just like Jesus, he wasn't looking for his name in lights, though he is God. He didn't, he didn't consider it to be something to be grasped at. But he made himself of no reputation, Philippians 2, 5 through 8 tells. He made himself empty. He didn't put his name on a billboard or in lights. He was fine with the Father receiving the glory. Are we okay with that? Are we okay with God receiving the glory? Or are we looking for glory for ourselves? Jesus' attitude was that. Hey, I've come to do my Father's bidding. I've, can't, I've come to do His work. I've come to speak His words. I've come in His power and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the whole point. He came in all of that so that He would be able to do these things so that people would glorify the Lord God Almighty. And then in verse 9 He says, And Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, Follow me. So he arose and followed him. I love that. He saw Matthew at the tax collector's office. Matthew was probably the head tax collector for this particular area, which was an area where you could make a lot of money. Tax collectors in those days was simple. Rome never announced what the tax was. They told the tax collectors, here's how much we want. Whatever you get above that is yours. So they go out, charge tax for this road, tax to come into town, tax to buy this, tax to do that. They charge all these exorbitant taxes, and most of them were Jewish people who were ripping off their own. And they were outcasts, hated. They were looked at in the same category as prostitutes. The same category as the worthless outcast lepers. Tax collectors. You'll find there that phrase always in that same area. But Jesus, as he's walking by, he sees Matthew and he says, follow me. What was there about Jesus? That when he said to a man, follow me, he left it all and followed him. Matthew different than everybody else because really the fishermen, they could go back. When Matthew walked away from that table, he could never go back again. Another one would take that office right now. That opportunity to collect those taxes didn't stay open for very long. When Matthew got up and walked away, he left it all. What was there? In the words of Jesus, in his teaching, in his, in his eyes, that when he looked at Matthew, no pause, no I'll think about it, no let me go bury my father first, it was okay. And he left it all. And I think today, for, for a lot of us, that's what God desires from us. I think a lot of us, we... We, we don't necessarily do that. I'm not saying that you have to. Obviously, we know that the disciples went back to, to fishing in John chapter 21. They all went back to their boats. Not forever, but they went back to their boats. They had life to go back to, but Matthew didn't. I think there's something to be said for that commitment in your life that says, you know, more than anything else, I want this. More than anything else, I want to honor my, my Father in heaven. I want to honor my King. I'm going to live my life for Him. 
And Matthew, he left it all. The other cool thing is Matthew doesn't tell us that. Matthew, who's writing this book, he just says, and I followed him. You have to go to Luke. Luke's the one who says, yeah, Matthew left it all. Everything. Everything in his life left behind for the opportunity to be in the presence of God. That's how much he treasured that relationship. That's how much he treasured that opportunity to be with the Lord Jesus. And so, Scripture goes on to tell us, Now it happened, as Jesus sat at the table in the house, this is Matthew's house, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So Matthew throws a party. Well, he don't know anybody but sinners, which works out pretty good. So he invites all his friends. Hey, guys, come over to the house. you got to meet this guy, Jesus. So all the tax collectors, the hated people of the, of the community, come, come to my house, come hang out. So his house is full of sinners and tax collectors. Now, my goodness, that's no place to have church, right? Whatever. Welcome to the house of Matthew right now. Full of tax collectors and sinners. That's how it's supposed to be. That's who Jesus came for. If you're not one of those, you're deceiving yourself. For the Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. Nobody. So, of course, the Pharisees are upset, right? The Pharisees are upset. Here's Jesus. He seems to be a holy guy, and he's hanging out with sinners. And the Pharisees saw it. They said to the disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Now, often the Pharisees called Jesus teacher. So he gives them a lesson. Here's the lesson. The lesson that he lays out for them, go and understand what this means. For I desire mercy and not sacrifice. The whole point that Jesus is, is making is that his mission, the mission that Jesus Christ is on, it's not based on keeping the law or outward righteousness, it's all based on mercy. In fact, he went on to, to decide to, to decipher that a little for us when he said, I came for the sick and not for the well. Now, here's what the Pharisees don't understand they're sick, they're all sick. Everyone needs a Savior, everyone needs a touch of Jesus Christ in their life, and they didn't understand that. Because they said, man, come on, we go to church every day, every Sunday we go, we make sure we worship, we say all the right prayers, we're part of all the right committees, we do all the right things. So I'm not sick because I've done these things. But the Bible lays out very clearly, it's not about what you do, you must come to God based on His mercy. You cannot get there by your sacrifice. You cannot get to God by your sacrifice. They've been offering sacrifices for years until the writer of Hebrews would say, but Jesus Christ offered himself once for all mankind. That's the sacrifice that saves, and we come to that through mercy. 
Not through works that I can do. Not through rituals that the Pharisees could do. Jesus said, go and understand what this means. Because the scripture laid out for us that God said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want you to come to me and I'll make you whole. The same thing that God cried out in the Old Testament. He calls out in the new through his son. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus didn't come to call the righteous, which is good news. Here's the good news in that. There aren't any. Isn't that what the book of Romans tells us? For there is none righteous. No, not one. Careful study of the Greek and Hebrew would tell us that there aren't any righteous. No, not one. You cannot get there because you're good. You cannot get there because you do things. You get there because of your relationship with Jesus Christ and his mercy on your life. We receive that mercy by going to him and acknowledging, admitting, I'm a sinner. The Pharisees couldn't have it because they didn't think they were. I've been going to, to the jails for a couple of years now. I go a couple times a, a year for a month. I'll go in and teach. And while I was in uh, teaching this last Tuesday, actually, uh, Brian Daly taught. He came with me. But as, as we were in there doing it, there was a, uh, I got the chance to overhear some witnessing going on. And the witnessing that was going on, this man's response to the word of God was, heaven will be will be a great place. They'll be happy to have me because I'm such a good person. Man. You ever told a lie? Yeah. What's that make you? Liar. Do you understand the righteous requirement of God? He said, be perfect. Are you perfect? No. But heaven be lucky to have me. He would not acknowledge that he's a sinner. If you cannot acknowledge that you're a sinner, you cannot be saved. Period. That's why Jesus said, I came for the sick. I didn't come for the righteous. I didn't come for those who think they're okay. I came for those who know they're not okay. I came to restore the broken. Not restore those who think they're whole. I came to bring peace to the troubled, not to those who pretend not to be troubled. I came to touch the outcast, not those who think they're the in crowd. I came to those who understand their need for a savior. And that's what Jesus is laying out for them right now. And then in verse 14, he says, now listen, the disciples of John came to him and said, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Now here's the, here's the concept. First, Jesus is saying, I've come to the righteous. Now the question comes from John, John the Baptist's disciples, and they say to him, in essence, well, then how is righteousness practiced? Because you're hanging out with sinners. We practice righteousness by going through our rituals, representative in this story, by fasting. They fasted. Tuesdays and Thursdays was fast day. And by their fasting, they were showing their righteousness. And so the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees want to know, well, how come you guys don't fast? 
How come you guys aren't, aren't caught up into this fasting? The scripture goes on to say, Jesus answered. He said, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. He says, they're not going to fast now because I, the bringer of joy, am in their midst. They don't need to fast. But the day will come, the first instance of Jesus beginning to talk about his eventual death and separation from the disciples. Death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. The day will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. And when he's taken away, they will fast. Here's the reason why the church fasts today. Because we long to be with Jesus. I often think about what it was like for for Matthew and John and James, who spent every day with the Lord for three years, who was there every time he woke up and returned from his early morning prayers, every healing he did, everything he ever spoke, they were with him every day for three years. And then when Jesus was crucified, buried, rose again, and ascended into heaven, how much did they miss him? Jesus said, the day will come when I'll be taken away. And then they'll fast. They'll fast because they long to be with me. We don't fast to show righteousness. In fact, Jesus said, when you fast, don't let anybody know you're doing it. Your fast ought to be secret. It's between you and God. Our fast is what we do. When we fast, what we're saying is, man, God, I miss you. I want to be with you. I want, to, I want to just focus the desires of my body on you. For a while, nothing else, just you. Jesus said that day would come when he was taken away. But look at what the scripture also says. In verse 16, he says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch pulls away and the garment and the tear is made worse. Huh? Here's what Jesus is saying. I'm doing something new. Don't try to attach it to the old. It's something new. You can't take the new thing that I am doing and stitch it into the old. You can't take the gospel and stitch it into Judaism. You can't take the work of God and stitch it into ritualism because it's new. It'll tear apart. It can't, it can't be a part of the same thing. He even goes on to tell us about the wineskin. He says, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Both are preserved. Hey, I'm doing something new. And it's not going to fit with all of the old ways of thinking that you have. It's going to fit in the new. Don't try to stitch it together. Don't try to attach it to what John the Baptist had you guys doing. What you guys were doing was great. Jesus is not saying it had no value. But he says now there's a new thing coming. A new work of the Spirit. A new work of God. Don't try to stitch it in to the old. It will stand on its own. Let it stand. Let it stand. Let it be that which encourages you, which draws you deeper in your relationship with the Lord. Verse 18, he begins 
looking now toward the restoration of the broken, it says, While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him and said, My daughter has just died. Come and lay your hand on her and she will live. The Bible tells us in the Gospel of Luke, his name is Jairus. Jairus. He comes to Jesus hoping for a healing of his daughter. And as he's on the way, and as Jesus is on the way to his house, he gets word that his daughter has died. But he wants Jesus to to touch her. Come touch her and she'll be okay. Come move in her life. And so Jesus says, Jesus arose and followed him. And so did his disciples. They got up to go with him. Right on. Okay, let's go with Jairus. And suddenly... A woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I could touch his garment, I will be made well. If only I can touch his hem. You want to do an interesting study in the scriptures. Do an interesting study about how often the hem comes up in the scriptures. In the, in the prophets, God says, I will lay the hem of my shawl over you. That ought to speak to us because there was a young woman named Ruth who laid at the feet of Boaz. And in order to save her, he laid the hem of his robe over her. He covered her. Just like God covers us. This woman who had had an issue of blood for 12 years... For 12 years, she is ritually unclean. A lot of people believe that she's a Gentile because she's where she's at. If she was a Jew, she couldn't be in town. Everything she touched, everywhere she went, made them or that which she touched unclean. She was like a leper because she had this issue of blood for 12 years. Maybe she was, maybe she wasn't. We don't know. All we know is Jesus is on the way to Jairus' house. And Jairus is probably a little bit uptight, right? My daughter has just died. And he's probably pretty sure he needs to get Jesus there quick if this is going to work. And so as Jesus is going through the crowds, crowds all around him, we know that this woman believing that if she could just touch the hem, that's the place where they would stitch in the power of the family. It was like the, the Scottish kilts. The pattern spoke of the lineage of the person. The same way with the hem of the garment in those days. Remember David? When, what did he do to Saul? He cut his what? He cut his, the hem of his garment. You remember? He cut off his hem. What's that mean? You're cut off. Your line is cut off. And then David was brokenhearted that he had done it because he shouldn't have touched God's anointed. But ultimately, Saul was what? Cut off, just like David said. The woman believed, I could touch his hem. If I could touch his hem, I'll be okay. She's got faith. She's got faith in in what she's doing. Her theology is not okay. The hem really has nothing to do with what Jesus can do. But it doesn't matter that her theology is messed up. See, Jesus doesn't care that that's perfect. He'll get her there. Right now, he just wants her to to be able to experience the touch of God in her life. She's unclean. She's an outcast. She's broken. And she touches him. But Jesus turned around and said, 
When he saw her, be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well at that very hour. Well, we know in the Gospel of Luke what happened, right? Jesus stopped and said, hey, who touched me? And all the disciples said, what do you mean who touched you, Lord? There are people everywhere. Everybody's touching you. No. I felt power go out for me. Who touched me? Why is he saying that? Because he is forcing a woman who had been unclean for 12 years to share her testimony on the street. She said, I touched you, Lord. For I had a flow of blood for 12 years and I spent all my money to try to make it right, but no one could make it right. But now, since I've touched you, I have been made clean. She shared her testimony right there before all the people. Who else did she share her testimony to? You remember the dad who came to get Jesus, right? Hurry up, Lord, you know, my daughter, she needs help. He got to hear it too. Because he needs to have faith, doesn't he? He needs to trust the Lord. So he gets to hear the witness of this woman who had this issue of blood. He gets to hear what's going on in her and what's happening in her. And so he hears and they continue on the way. It says that when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in a noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, make room. The girl is not dead. She is sleeping. Listen, Jesus does not deny the reality of her death. Just the finality of it. Do you understand that? Jesus doesn't deny the reality of her death. Just the finality of it. Do you ever struggle with that? Because it's the same today. Death is not final. To be absent from the body, the scriptures declare, is to be present with the Lord instantly. With him. If you're born twice, you die once, right? If you're born once, you'll die twice. The second death is eternal. Eternal separation from a holy and just God. So Jesus, seeing these professional, they had a professional musicians. Whenever somebody died, they called the band. And the band would play sad songs, and the people would mourn and wail. And the more mourning and wailing went on, the more important the person was. So in order to honor the person who had died, they would go through this. And Jesus comes, and that's what's going on. They're preparing the funeral procession. Hey, they were going to bury her right then. You understand? They didn't wait a few days and have a funeral service and all that stuff. No. If someone died, they got buried that day. Right now. So they're getting ready to bury her. Jesus says, hey, don't do this. She's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn. That's what the scripture says. They ridiculed him. The king. The one with power over life and death. And he's going to prove to them that he, the king, has power over life and death. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and he took her by the hand. And he said to her, the other gospels tell us, Talitha kumi. My little child, rise. And she arose. At one time the disciples said, Who is this man? Even the wind and the wave obeys his voice. Who is this man who calls forth 
from the dead, the living. I want you to think about the two miracles we just talked about. If the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years was a Gentile, and Jesus is on his way to raise from the dead a daughter of Zion, little girl from Israel, on his way to raising her, he healed an outcast, the Gentile. And then he raised from the dead the Jew. Isn't that what Jesus is doing today? On his way to fulfilling the the prophecies where Jesus Christ himself is going to raise up the nation of Israel. Where they will finally receive him as their king. Where they'll finally recognize him. Where he will bring them from the four corners of the world. And he'll gather them together in one. And from the dead he will raise them to life. But on his way, he healed the Gentiles. He brought life to the outcasts. Just as he promised to do in the Old Testament scriptures. So this little girl raises from the dead and provides for us a picture of the work that Jesus Christ is still doing. Is still Working is still moving. It says, the scripture goes on to say, And when this report went out into all the land, that people everywhere were talking about it. And Jesus departed from there, and two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. They are calling him the Messiah. Listen, they're calling him the Messiah. Son of David, a a title of the Messiah. Son of David, have mercy on us. Two blind men. How are they following them? They're blind, right? How's a blind following Jesus? How are the blind seeking him out? How are the blind calling out for him? The Bible tells us that we are darkness, but he, he's the light of the world and even in the midst of that darkness when Jesus Christ dawns in our life uh, we can see they find a way they call out to him son of David Messiah have mercy on us knowing that the scriptures declare only God gives sight to the blind the Bible tells us that in the book of Psalms only God gives sight to the blind And so they call out to him, Son of David, have mercy on us. And when he had come into the house, they're coming into Peter's house now. When he had come into the house, a blind man came to him and Jesus said, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? And they said, Yes, we believe. And when he touched their eyes, he said, According to your faith, let it be to you. Listen, when Jesus is talking about this, he's talking about the fact of their faith. Not the amount. Do you get that? A lot of people believe you have to have this incredible faith in order to be healed or touched by God. But Jesus said if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you would be able to say to this mountain, be removed and cast into the sea and it would happen. He's not talking about the amount of their faith. He's talking about the fact that they have it. That they have faith. Period. 
that they believe, that they trust God is able to do what he said he would do. And so Jesus touches them. He restores the broken, the blind, those who can't see. He brings that restoration. And then it says, Then Jesus said to them, Now their eyes were open, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. Is it hilarious how many times Jesus can tell someone to do something and they won't do it? Cracks me up. Jesus tells them, be quiet, and they won't be quiet. He tells us to speak, and we won't speak. We tend to be disobedient, strong-willed children of the king, don't we? But he loves me anyway, just like he loved these guys. And he's probably telling them to be quiet for their own good, because if they go around calling him the son of David, somebody's going to get mad at them. Them Pharisees, right? The Pharisees who are shortly going to send him to the cross for the same thing. See that you tell no one, but they went everywhere and told everybody. And when they had departed, they spread the news about him in all the countries. And and as they went out, behold, they brought to him a man, mute and demon-possessed. Man, Jesus can't catch a break. One healing to another healing to a teaching to a healing to a teaching to reaching out, touching someone's life. Stop looking for a break. Start looking for opportunity to be his hands and feet. Don't need a break. I love at the end of Schindler's List. I had an opportunity to see Schindler's grave there in Israel. But at the the end of the movie, Schindler's List, and he's thinking about the thousand people that he saved. He looks down and he sees a a ring or a watch. And he says, I could have sold this watch and saved one more. The whole point of that, when we look look back on our lives, when we look back on the things we could have done, we don't want to have any regrets that we could have shared with one more person. We could have got one more person into the kingdom of God. Don't waste today. Think about, you want to say, I love you. How can I tell you, Lord, I love you? I love you so much. You want to tell Jesus, show Jesus how how to tell him you love him? Tell someone else about him. When we don't tell anybody about him, that just says we're ashamed. When we tell people about him, that says we love him. We love him and what he's done. We want to have those opportunities. Well, they bring this demon-possessed man to the Lord. And it says, and, and when the demon was cast out, the mute spoke. And the multitude marveled, saying, it has never been like this in Israel. The people are looking at Jesus and thinking, more rightly than the Pharisees, the lepers are cleansed, the lame walk, the mute speak, the blind see... It's never been like this in the history of the world. Something is going on. Something is happening. But where are the self-righteous? Where are the ones who could point it out to look at the scripture and say, Yes, this is the Messiah. Yes, this is God in the flesh. He has come to save us. Well, they're there. They have a response too, right? 
But the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the ruler of demons. He casts out demons by the power of Beelzebub. He's a tool of Satan. Man, there's the people calling out something special is going on. The outcasts, the broken, those in need of a Savior. Listen, they didn't miss it. The outcast, the broken, those in need of a Savior, they didn't miss Jesus. They found Him. On the day of Pentecost, 3,000 of them were saved. Shortly thereafter, another 5,000 was added to their, to their number. And ever since that moment moving forward, the outcast, the broken, those in need of a touch of God, those in need of restoration, they've all been coming to Jesus. The ones who don't are still the same. They're the ones who think they're okay. I'm okay. I'm a good person. I got it all worked out myself. Life's good like it is. They're the ones, like the Pharisees, who have no use for Jesus. No use for the work that he does. No use for the work that he brings. Verse 35, it says, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among all the people. And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved by compassion for them, because they are weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Like sheep having no shepherd. Jesus sees them, moved by their spiritual need. They need a shepherd. John chapter 10, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. What marked the good shepherd? He gives his life for the sheep. That's what Jesus did. He gave his life for the sheep. He gave his life for them. And he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. In light of this great need, just prior to Jesus sending out the twelve to go out and minister to the people around him, Jesus refers to the need of workers. He refers to the need of people being a part of it. The crowds, they're mainly concerned with their physical needs. I need a healing. I need a touch. I need this. I need that. But we know the spiritual need. Jesus doesn't tell us not to meet the physical need of those who who have those needs. That's why as a fellowship, we help people who need help as much as we can. But that opportunity of helping someone who doesn't have any food and making sure they have food or helping them find a place to live when they don't have any place to live or they're living in their car or reaching out to people who need reach out to, the point is not to do that. The point is to have opportunity to speak to the spiritual need. I can feel your belly. But you need the one who can restore your soul. Who can give you life. Who will make a difference in every area of your life. You will be hungry again. You'll be out of gas again. You'll be in need again. But if you ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, you will never lack for a shepherd For he's a good shepherd, gave his life for the sheep, and he will lead you, right? 
The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't have to be afraid because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. My cup runs over. The Lord is our shepherd. He is everything we need. And the answer, this should be our prayer. The harvest is plentiful. Every day I walk by thousands of people who don't know Jesus. Every day I have an opportunity to be a light. Every day you do too. If you want to be an answer to this prayer that Jesus prayed, all you have to do is raise up your hand and say, Here am I. Send me. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for the truth of your word, God, and to see the power of the King, the power of the King to touch the outcasts, the power of the King to bring peace to the troubled, the power of the King to restore the broken. God, I thank you that's still your power. And more than anything, Lord, I thank you that you are my King. And I will serve you my whole life. Whatever there is of it, whatever is left, you are my reason for getting up in the morning. Well, there's a lot of things I have to do, Lord God, but I get up to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and everything else will be okay. God, it's our prayer in this place that we, your people who know you, who put our faith and trust in you, that that would be our prayer, God. Here am I, send me. The the harvest is plenty, but there needs to be workers. There needs to be people willing to say, you know what, I'm going to sit down with with the Sunday school class and tell these little ones about Jesus. There needs to be someone who says, you know what, I'm going to take an opportunity to sit with a baby so mama can go in and be a part of service and, and catch a break and be ministered to by the Spirit. There needs to be people willing to say, you know what, this guy, he looks upset here at this gas station with me, and I'm just going to ask if I can pray for him. God, make us not afraid of man, but fill us with the fear of God that says, I don't want to disappoint my father. I don't want to disappoint the one who died for me. I want to realize and recognize every moment Wasted, I don't get back. But every morning, you give me a new day full of new opportunities. And I want to I wanna step out in faith. I want to meet those new opportunities. I want to allow God to touch and move in people's lives. Lord God, let that be our prayer. For you are God of this city. You are God of this country, God of this state. I don't know, Lord, maybe all the problems of the world are too big for me, but I can be a solution for the problems of the people in my community. 
I can be a hand of God reaching out with mercy. I can be the foot of God putting myself in a place where I can help, where I can point people to Christ, where I can bring people to see Jesus. Oh, Lord God, we're not guaranteed another day. And I know that there are people out there that are burdens on our heart and we say, Lord, send someone to speak to them. But maybe God's saying, I'm sending you. Are you willing? Will you go? Or are you ashamed? Or are you afraid? For perfect love casts out fear. And the love of God is poured out in our heart by the Holy Spirit. We don't have to be afraid. For lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Where you go, Lord, I will go. God, it's my prayer this morning. As we leave this place and enter into the mission field. Send us. We are willing. We are able by your power. Through your spirit. Lord, we ask that you would move upon this city, this community, the surrounding cities. Pour out a revival that cannot be contained. And may the credit, all the credit, go to God. May no church get the credit for what you're doing. It's a move of God and his spirit, Lord, move. Pour out revival in this land and use us to be a part. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.